seated. And if you have your copy of God's Word with you this morning, please turn with me to the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 to 22 is where we will be spending our time this morning. This passage in some ways is directly tied to the previous passage that we saw last Sunday. If you remember from last week, we talked about the suffering of the Christian and how we are to endure it and we're to do so joyfully for it is better to suffer for doing good than that which is evil. And this week, we're going to continue right onto or into that theme by saying, and Jesus himself is the prime example. Jesus himself suffered for doing good. And as we've talked about across this whole series, you know, we've titled this series, Hope for Living Faithfully During Trying Times, for the church that Peter writes to was facing trying times. I believe we as a church today are facing trying times to live faithfully, to be a bold witness in our society. We've talked about this whole time. The key to that, the answer to doing that is Jesus, is Jesus Christ. His life, His death, His resurrection, His ministry unlocks for us the ability to live holy, as, as Peter said in chapter 1, be holy as I the Lord, your God, am holy. And so it makes sense that that Peter gives us almost this case study this morning of what does righteous suffering look like? What does it look like to live boldly before the Lord in face of adversity? Now I say all of that and I need to admit something to you this morning. I want to quote Martin Luther here. Martin Luther in studying 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 to 22, said this. A wonderful text this is, and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the entire New Testament. So much so that I do not for a certainty know what Peter means. I confess to you this morning, I am not smarter nor wiser than Martin Luther. There are going to be parts of this passage that we're going to conclude it is hard to know what it means. But the beauty and the challenge of expository preaching means that I cannot skip this simply because it's going to be difficult to preach. You are expecting this passage, and by God's providence, it is for us today. And so it will be by His mercy that we go through it. And by His mercy and His mercy alone, we will get through it. But don't fear, this passage is good because it is from God, and it is beneficial for us. And so I offer that just as a prelude um, so that we can know we will talk about difficult things this morning. With that in mind, would you please follow along with me as we read God's Word for us today? And I actually want to go back one verse to verse 17, uh, but I will be reading 1 Peter chapter 3. I'll start in verse 17 and read through 22. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirit in prison, to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, 
in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected to him. The grass may wither and the flower may fade, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. He's promised us in his word that much like the water that falls from the heaven and nourishes the ground, so too will his word go forth and provide for us that which we need for life. Would you please go with me in prayer as we ask the Lord's blessing upon this time. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you humbled this day. It is humbling to even be under your word. It is humbling to even be able to gather together this day. It is humbling to know that you provide your word for our good. Father, as we unpack this text this morning, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Through the power of your Holy Spirit, lighten the words upon the page and put them in our hearts that we may not sin against you. I pray for your people, O Lord. I pray for myself that you would give us understanding, that you would be with us, and that you, above all else, would be glorified because of it. We thank you for this time, and we dedicate it to you now. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. There's only one person who has ever lived that can rightly ask God the question, why does bad things happen to good people? And that person is Jesus Christ. He is the only person that can truly ask that question. Because he is the only one who lived a sinless life of full obedience. He's the only one who was crucified and faced God's full wrath, not for his sins, but the sins of his brothers and sisters in Christ and him. Those who would trust in God by faith and rest upon His work for their salvation. One of the best tools we have in suffering is to look to Christ, that one that was good, that was righteous, that suffered for the sins of others. When we do that, it helps make our own afflictions seem small. In light of His sacrifice, of His work, of His faith, that which we face often becomes a lot smaller than it initially seems to be. And that is part of the power of Christ in our lives as He goes forth as our example, as He goes forth as our mediator, as He goes forth on our behalf. He bought for us freedom and gifted us the Holy Spirit so that we might endure struggles and glorify Him with our lives. This is the power of Christ. And this morning... As would of the church that Peter writes, I want us to ponder the blessings of Christ. I want us to not ignore the trying times, not cast them away, not say that they don't exist, but instead, in light of them, look to Christ and say, Christ will see me through. Christ will be my strength. Christ will help me endure. And we see that in four ways in our text this morning. Four actions by Christ that empower us to face suffering, to face trials and difficulties. First, we see that Christ suffers for us. 
We find this in verse 18. Secondly, we see that Christ proclaims the good news. We find this in 18 to 20. Then thirdly, Christ saves his people. We find this in 20 and 21. And then fourthly, and really a pinnacle of the passage, Christ sits in victory. We find this in our final verse. Four actions by Christ, each one designed to glorify himself, to glorify the triune God, and to equip his church, his people, us, to face suffering and find hope during trying times. And so let us unpack each of these points, beginning in verse 18. And 18 begins with a very important word. Words have meaning and the placement of them matter. And it begins with that important word, for. F-O-R, for. It's a linking word, tying what had been said with what is about to be said. It's why I went back a verse and read 17 going into this passage. Peter, in verse 17, it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than doing evil. And then again, if we tie that into our passage, it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for our sins. And if we unpack that a little bit, we can clear things up rather quickly. Christ did not suffer for evil, and so it's not the it's better to suffer for good than for evil, so it's not that part of it. We don't say Christ suffered for evil since he never sinned. And so Christ is suffering for good. He's suffering for a good cause. He suffered for a noble reason. And we know that this suffering is what took place on the cross. He suffered by offering himself as a sacrifice. He did not do it for himself, or he did not sin, therefore he did not pay for his own. But he suffered for his people. And it was enough. It was enough. When Christ died and rose again, that payment was accepted by God. We know this. We have a beautiful example of this. I believe it's in Matthew's gospel. Um, the temple curtain torn in two from top to bottom. That was a great big curtain that signified man can now live in God's presence. Marking off where normal priests could go to the holy of holies. The place that only the high priest only once a year could go. Torn top to bottom. Man now can dwell with God. God now dwells with man because of the sacrifice of Christ and through the power of the Holy Spirit. All of this bought by Christ's suffering. And it was suffering. May we not make too light of the fact that upon the cross, the weight of God's wrath was poured out fully and completely. The sky darkened. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus Christ, quoting Psalm 22. He faced the full wrath of God. And it was for the right... It was the righteous suffering for the unrighteous. Peter, again, he's going to double down on this, really emphasize this. We are the unrighteous. He is the righteous. So the one who has not sinned suffers for a good cause. He, the righteous, suffers for us, the unrighteous. And that brings an important point. We deserved to suffer. We deserved this fate. We deserve the consequences of our actions, for we have sinned. We have fallen short of the glory of God. We deserve death and eternal punishment. 
And yet, Peter, in this very first verse, man, the gospel is really alive in this. He suffered for us, the righteous for the unrighteous. And what did it accomplish? What did it accomplish? Again, like I said, the gospel's right here. That he might bring us to God. The one who is sinless, the one who suffered, suffered a righteous man for unrighteous people, that we might be brought to God. That we might dwell with him. That we might be in his presence. I love how Jesus says it in John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In Jesus Christ, we have access to the Father. We now can be in his presence. We are like John, who was declared clean in his vision of the throne of God. We are like Isaiah, who the altar, the coal of the altar, representing God's purifying fire, was touched on his lips, and he can now stand in God's presence in his vision in Isaiah 6. We are clean. And if anything else took place, if there was any other circumstance, if we were in God's presence and we were not made clean, we would be consumed. We would be destroyed. God cannot endure sin. God cannot have it in His presence. And so God makes us clean so we can stand before Him. And so the first point we see in in one of the most powerful parts of this passage is that Christ suffered for His people. Now we ask the question, how does that help me endure hardship? How does that help the church endure difficult times? And the answer to that is quite simple, really. You have been paid for in full, dear Christian. Your sins are forgiven. Now, this is not a license to sin as much as we want. Paul is very clear in Galatians and in Romans. It's not a license just to see how much we can run the bill up. But it is an assurance that no matter what happens in this life, we are covered by the shed blood of Christ. Our greatest debt has been dealt with, which in turn frees us to give, to serve, and to love without worry of the cost. It's much like going out on a date and your parents, they give you a card and say, just get back safely. You don't have to worry. You know you've got $47 in your account. You don't have enough to even put gas in the car. But they give you that card and say, don't worry about it. Have a good time. You know it's covered. Now, if you go to a steakhouse and you have a $300 dinner, you're going to answer for that. Again, it's not an excuse. It's not a license to go run up the bill. But you feel safe. You rest assured. That's what it's like in a much greater way. You're paid for. And so when we boldly share the gospel, as we were called to in the previous section, as we boldly suffer for righteousness' sake, as we boldly go out into this world and give a defense of the hope that's in us, we do so knowing we're covered. And so this is one of the most powerful truths of our passage this morning. Jesus Christ suffered for you, dear Christian. And I just I have to state it this morning. If you're trusting in Him today, if you're resting in His finished work, on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins. This is for you. If that's not the case, you will pay your bill. And you will pay it in totality. And you will face the full and complete wrath of God for all eternity for disobeying and and breaking and violating His commands. But you can be made right, right with God today. You can know this peace. You can know the rest and the hope that it is to trust in Jesus today. 
And so don't waste this day. Don't waste this time that you've been given to come to him. Please know this in your life. I want you to have comfort in Jesus Christ because it gets better from here. As we go through the passage, it piles on more and more and more. Not only does Christ suffer for us, he also proclaims the good news. Again, in the previous passage, we were told to, to share the gospel, to defend our faith, and now we see that Jesus does so also. He gives us that example. Would you look with me at our second section? Peter concludes in, in verse 18, Jesus Christ being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. And one commentator notes that the Spirit here really should be capitalized. Christ was raised through the power of the Holy Spirit. This, the gospel, that Christ died, that he was raised from the dead. And then at Pentecost, God sent down his spirit. Remember that, that wonderful, miraculous event, flaming tongues descending from heaven, lighting upon believers. God sends that very same spirit, the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, now dwells with believers to strengthen us, to guide us, to open our eyes to the scriptures. It's why we pray, Lord, open our eyes. We're saying, Holy Spirit, help us to see and to understand. This should encourage us, dear brothers and sisters. Christ proclaimed the gospel by living it. Christ bought for us this good news. Now here is where the text admittedly gets very difficult to interpret. Please bear with me. And I, I love what one um, pastor said as he got ready for this. If you have a better read on this, talk to me afterward, and I would be happy to discuss it. Um, for this is a challenging text. Because... We read that, that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, that the power of the Holy Spirit raised him from the dead, and then Peter goes on to say this, and Jesus went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Now, there's a lot of ways of interpreting who the spirits in prison are, and I've read nearly every commentary this week and realized that even they don't have all of them. So, let's, let's think of some of them. It could be that the spirits in prison are demonic powers who have sinned at some point in the time of Noah. And so Jesus is going into hell and preaching against them to further the condemnation. Some people think, rather, it's Jesus descending into hell between his death and resurrection to proclaim his victory over the unbelieving dead. And then a very few, so that would be humans, so it's either he's descending into hell and preaching to spirits, or he's descending in hell to preach to the unbelieving dead, or even, um, even fewer, think that he is um, preaching to those in hell to give them an opportunity to believe the gospel. And so there's a lot of disagreement here on who Jesus is preaching to and what he is doing. And I don't like any of those, I'll be honest. I like none of those three options. Um, and they are the prevalent options in the commentaries. So with great humility, I, I offer you what I believe is taking place. Having told us of the ministry of the Spirit in raising Jesus from the dead, Peter is now encouraging the church, the suffering church, who lives in the power of the Holy Spirit, 
by reminding us of a time in human history. A time in human history where the world was known for its unbelief and wickedness. And what better place to speak of unbelief and wickedness than in the days of Noah? And really, what I believe he's saying here is what the Spirit did in the days of Noah, he can do it again. He can do it again because Christ has been risen from, Christ has risen from the dead. Back to the story of Noah, this time was marked by immorality and unbelief. People prided themselves in their sin. They named their families, their genealogies after their sinfulness. It really was this testament to, look how wicked I can be after Cain. They were mocked and they were ridiculed for their faith, Noah and his family. Nobody believed a flood was coming, and yet Noah obeys God. Second Peter 2.5 calls him a preacher of righteousness. He preached a message to the people. And think about it, he did not necessarily do it with words, he did it by action. By faithfully, by humbly nailing together piece after piece a, a people who had never seen rain, who had never known the destructive power of floods. Noah, board after board, animal after animal, gathering them together. By his patience was saying, God is just. Judgment is coming There's an ark, flee to the refuge of God. Take refuge. God has provided a way of escape. Doesn't that sound like the gospel? Doesn't that sound like God's message of hope? Trust in me and you will be saved. And yet they did not. They rejected that sermon. God's patience waited, Peter said, while the ark was being prepared offering redemption and rescue and only Noah's family responded in faith. Eight upon the ark were saved. And this results at that time that the spirits of that generation, unbelieving, are now in prison. They are now in hell. They are in judgment. the, The way he uses spirits here, we don't think it's demonic people or fallen angels. We could talk about the the semantics of the word choice here. We don't necessarily think it's hell because of the lack of Sheol or other words that are used. Instead, we do believe that this is judgment for the people of past, of Noah's day, the ones that did not believe. And it says that Christ preached to that generation by the Holy Spirit. And what I really believe he's saying here is Christ preached through Noah. Christ preached through Noah in his generation. In that time, he was preaching, repent, trust in the kingdom of God. And there's two passages in in Peter that that really gives emphasis to this. Um, Chapter 1, verse 11, Peter's talking about the work of the prophets. And he says, they predict the suffering of Christ by the Spirit of Christ in them. And so Noah being a prophet was predicting the suffering of Christ by the Holy Spirit living in him. And that's the same spirit preaching to this generation. And the other passage that gives emphasis to this is 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 6. Peter speaks to the gospel, Even those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they may live in the spirit the way that God does. And so we've got the opposite here. Like I said, this is really confusing, so... Imagine this, you've got one group of people in the day of Noah who are judged. They reject God's word and they're judged. 
And so Christ preaching to them is a preaching of judgment. You are condemned for you rejected God. Here in 1 Peter 4, 6, we get the opposite. There are those who are dead, so people that aren't living. They were judged in the flesh. By that, they've died. They face judgment. We will all face judgment. We will all die. But they live in the Spirit. So these are believers. So these in 1 Peter 4, 6 are believers who have faced judgment but live because of the Spirit. And in Noah's day, we've got people who face the Spirit by the preaching of Noah, really the preaching of Christ, and they are judged for it. And so when it says that Christ preached to those in prison, it's really looking back. It's looking back to those who faced judgment, and they are now condemned because of it. Now, that, that is very tricky, um, and we tread lightly. And again, I, I remind you of Luther saying, I have no idea what Peter is saying here. But if that was not technical enough, <laughs> let us continue. Because Christ does preach the gospel. Christ proclaims the good news, not only by his actions and by his life, and we also see it all throughout biblical history, but even more pointedly, he saves his people. He saves his people through his work. And in verses 20 and 21, um, we dig in even more. And we really divide people, don't we? If we? By bringing up Noah, there's people saved and there's people not. There's people that listen, there's people that don't. There's people that trust God, there's people that trust in themselves. There's people that listen to his plan, there's people that reject his plan. We really... I mean, if we really want to go back, all the way back, if you remember our story of Genesis, there's the people of God who trust in God's promise, the children of Adam. And then there's the people of man or of Satan who trust in the world, the children of Cain who trust in their own works and their own righteousness. There's really two camps here, and we're really just seeing that again. And so Christ saves his people. He saves those who trust in him. And one of the signs of that in our Christian tradition is baptism. Now, Peter, <laughs> Peter says here something interesting about baptism. Baptism, which corresponds to this, everything he's just said, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now sit with me here, you Presbyterians. I know this makes us squirm. And I've had seven days to squirm under this text. But I really think that Peter's saying something worthwhile here. God delivered Noah from the flood. And in some way, somehow, that mirrors or imitates or gives us an example of baptism. Now, that's a fun ex example in and of itself. Um, if you ever get in a debate with someone over the mode of baptism... Um, Noah never touched the water. Think about that. It's, it's a clear example of baptism. It's said multiple times in Scripture, it was a baptism and water never touched those that were saved. So anybody that ever wants to argue with the quantity of water, always bring up Noah and then just make sure everybody's angry. Because it's like, okay, there can be baptism without water? Well, that doesn't fit any of our paradigms. Um, please don't do that. that, that that's not very Christ-like. But... It does bring up a point that, that baptism is more than just the means. There's something else going on. There's something deeper at play here. And I don't believe, I, I really don't believe Peter is saying here, because he's done this for you know, three and a half chapters now, almost the totality of three chapters. Trust in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is enough. 
Jesus Christ will save you. Believe in him and you will be saved. He is enough. He will help you through trying times. And, oh, by the way, as long as you get baptized, you can have this for yourself. Peter is not adding on an addendum here and going, the gospel is enough, the gospel is what you need, and make sure you're baptized. No, I I think that what Peter is saying is we are saved by faith through grace in Jesus Christ just like Noah was. Think about it. Noah trusted God. He had faith that God would save them in the ark. The door was so big, Noah couldn't close it. And if you remember back to the story, it says, and God closed the door and sealed the ark. We're not sure what kind of man Noah was or what his profession was. He may not have been a carpenter before this. How was he to know it was going to work? Faith. God, I built this thing. You're going to have to make it float. It was faith. God sealed them in the ark. And thinking about that and relating it to baptism, when we baptize someone, whether an infant or an adult, we're not saying they're saved because of the water. Rather, we're saying faith in God is what saves us. This, I believe, is, is, is so beautiful, especially in an infant baptism. It's why I'm such a big fan, and, and I believe that it's a wise practice. Because what does it say when we baptize an infant? All they do is sit there and receive it and possibly cry. They, they just get it. The, the parent hands the pastor the baby, and the baby has no say in the matter. Usually they're too small to even get up and leave. They can't reject or say no or run away. They're, they're there, and they're baptized. And what is that baptism? We trust in God's promise and God's faithfulness to care for this child. And as they grow and as they learn about who God is, we trust that they will trust in him by faith and that they will take him as their Lord and Savior. And we will tell them and we tell us, all of us, anytime someone's baptized to do what? To remember your baptism, to reflect on the fact that you have been covered by the water You have been washed clean, not as a removal of dirt, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Christ. A baptism, any baptism, calls us to repent and trust in the Lord. And what a beautiful picture to have that infant who can't even respond be baptized saying, we trust in God. The emphasis is on Christ, the resurrection of Christ. It's Christ's work that saves us, not our own. Just like with Noah, Christ shut the door. And so baptism saves us, as he says. Baptism now saves you as much as we trust in him by faith. As much as we rest in him by faith, we receive the baptism, the cleansing waters, And all of this, everything we've said and all the confusion I've brought, which forgive me for that, really anchors itself in this final verse, the beautiful verse. I'm so glad after the section we just got through, Peter ends here. Because what a verse of victory. What a a calming, solid verse. Verse 22. Christ sits in victory. In light of all of it, in light of all that we've said, all that we've tried to understand, and all that's going on, 
Jesus suffers. Jesus preaches the gospel. Jesus saves us. And ultimately, Jesus sits in victory. Remember, he's writing to a church struggling. They've been kicked out of their home. They've been taken from their lives. They've been put in new places. They're in unfamiliar territory. There's bad theology in the church and outside the church. They're facing harsh governments. They're facing difficult rule. All these things are going on. And Peter knows this. And so he concludes this chapter and this section by saying, Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected to him. He rules. He reigns. He is victorious. He is on the throne, the right hand of God the Father. That right hand seat is a place of judgment. It gives him the authority to act and act as he sees fit. And all the angels and all the authorities and all the powers are subjected to him. I can't think of a more encouraging verse. I can't think of a more encouraging way to start this new year. I can't think of a better way for us as a church to to kick off 2022 than to be reminded Jesus Christ sits on the throne. He is victorious. He is in control. And his will will be done. If nothing else encourages you today, let this verse settle upon you. Because as we talk about how Jesus prepares us and and equips us to face suffering, what better thought than it's all worth it? If Jesus suffered for us, back in verse 17 and 18, if Jesus died for sinners and it worked out, he is now victorious, he's been elevated higher than the angels. He's given a position and a name above all names. What does that mean for us as his people? What does that mean for us as his church, his bride? Will he not care for us? Will he not see us through? Will he not let us suffer, whether we want it or not, because he knows it's good for us? Will he not bring hardship because he knows it will refine us and cause us to trust in ourselves less and him more? Will it not cause us to depend on him more? It's a hard thing to say, but oh, may Jesus Christ bring suffering to us this year. How's that for a challenge for the start of the year? Would Jesus Christ cause us to suffer that we may trust and rest upon him more? Remember, all the way back to verse 17, it is better to suffer for doing that which is good than for doing that which is evil, if it be God's will. I cannot tell you what's ahead in this coming year, dear Christians. I can tell you that it's often hard to walk a Christian life in this world. I can tell you that the measure to which we struggle and face hardship will vary from individual to individual. And yet, regardless of the circumstances, I can tell you this, Christ reigns. And He is sufficient. And He cares for you. He suffered for the sake of his people. He preached the gospel himself in word and in practice. He reigns and rules with absolute authority. And he works all things out for his glory and for our good. And we can trust in him and depend upon him. No matter what this year may bring, we can be at peace because we trust Jesus Christ. And at the very least, and I'll conclude with this, dear brother in Christ, and posted on his social media, I'm at the start of 2022. 
if nothing else good, if there's nothing else good to say, we are one year closer to the return of Christ than we were a couple of days ago. And that alone is worth saying praise be to God. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truths found in it. Lord, I thank you for difficult passages. I thank you for how we have to trust in you because sometimes we come to the conclusion we don't know, but you do. Father, I pray that through the power of your Holy Spirit you would strengthen us, that you would encourage us and equip us to face that which is ahead, that we would give a good testimony of the faith that is in us, all because of what Christ has done on our behalf. He, the righteous one, suffered for unrighteous. He did good. He suffered well in the, in the face of wickedness, not his own, but the wickedness of his people. Lord, I thank you for the sacrificial work of Jesus Christ. And as we look ahead to this year, may we look to Christ for our source of strength and hope. Lord, may you bless this church. Please be with its people. Be with our brothers and sisters all around the world in this area. Help us to serve you well, to face suffering with joy and gladness. We need you, O Lord, and we trust your plan, however it works out for our lives. Lastly, O Lord, we just ask, come quickly. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, come quickly. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.